Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to The Deal Board Podcast, uh, thedealboardpodcast.com. I am Andy Cagnetta. I'm with my partner, Jessica Fiakovic. Uh, we are from Transworld Business Advisors. And we have another great live podcast. We've been doing more and more of these during the COVID crisis. And everybody has lots of questions. And we've talked about valuation. We've talked about franchising. We've talked about uh, you know, the general marketplace out there in the world. And, uh, and it's pretty interesting, you know, the changes. And things are moving a mile a minute. Uh, I think some of the podcasts we did in March are already kind of like ancient history. Uh, so we here, here we are in May of 2020 talking about uh, the M&A world. And I think we have a lot to talk about today. So I want to get to our two great panelists today. Uh, and um, Jessica, did you want to say a few words before I introduce our panelists? No, I think this is just like you said, Andy, we're trying to cover all of the trends that are going on in the market right now. And we've talked a lot about small business transactions, um, but today we're going to focus on the larger transactions. So if you own a larger business, um, you know, and you're looking at more of that mergers and acquisitions space, today we're going to be talking about what's going on on both the sell side and the buy side. Um, And like you said, Andy, we've got two of our top experts in the Transworld Network from the M&A department. Yeah. And so with that, I will introduce uh, both the panelists and then we'll start asking questions from both of them. Uh, first, I want to introduce Peter Berg. Peter Berg and I have been partners for 20 years now. Uh, and uh, we both look at, uh, no, but we are, uh, we've been working successfully together. Peter has, came from the M&A world. Uh, Beige took his own company public. Uh, has a lot of background, been doing M&A work, obviously, at Transworld for many, many years uh, and working on a lot of sell-side activity uh, and I'll, I'll eventually let uh, Sunil uh, chime in as well. He could give a little bit about his background, but Sunil joined us a few years ago uh, and he is comes from the M&A private equity world, a lot of healthcare background, a lot of buy-side engagement. He's been working on a lot of buy-side engagements, just finished a very large transaction, one of our largest in history, uh, and uh, in the uh, agricultural space, which we'll talk about, we'll highlight that deal uh, because it happened in the middle of COVID and things happened to it. Uh, And so I just want to just go right in there. We have our moderator. I want to introduce our moderator, Danielle. Uh, She has been with us for 20 too many years. <laughs> so, 20 plus. And uh, she's, she's longer uh, than me. And so she is uh, manning or womaning the uh, question and answer, the Q&A. And there's Jessica popping in and uh, she's going to hand, handle the Q&A. So you can ask questions. Uh, Danielle is going to be ready to, we'll have a Q&A session at the end. And uh, Danielle will be uh, asking those questions. So uh, Jessica, you want to ask the first question of Peter? Right off the bat? Yeah, 
Yeah, we can. Uh, yeah, we can start with Peter. So, Peter, on the sell side, has the deal activity slowed in, in the M and A arena since COVID nineteen struck? Okay. Well, uh, good afternoon, Jessica. Good to see you. See your smiling face. Um, yeah, you know, it's um, the activity has slowed. Uh, primarily, what's happening is that uh, from private equity. There's a lot of triage going on uh, within their own portfolio companies. So the first thing that private equity groups had to do is get an assessment from their operators, from the presidents of their companies, as to what their cash flow needs were. You know, instead of quarterly cash flow um, projections, they were getting weekly cash flow projections. Instead of quarterly meetings, they were doing daily meetings trying to figure out what companies are on the ropes and what companies are going to survive, getting PPP loans, doing other things that they need to do to get capital, pulling down lines of credit, uh, getting flush, uh, cutting expenses. So that's a big distraction um, when, you know, you got to shore up your defense, you know, basically on the companies that you've already invested a lot of money in. Um, some of these companies need additional capital. And what I've been hearing on the street is that uh, private equity groups are going back and making new investments in existing companies at lower valuations. So it's not just a question of throwing money in, but it's throwing money in and getting something for it. Uh, so that's, that's kind of interesting. And then the last thing I would say on that score is that most private equity groups and, and strategics, even for that matter, they want to see the company, they want to tour the facility, they want to, you know, even though we're doing a lot of Zoom meetings and things like that, when it comes to laying out millions of dollars, you kind of, you really need to get in front of people. And because of the travel and because of COVID and because of social distancing, it's just starting to reemerge. And people say, look, I'm ready to tee it up, but I'm not going to lay a, put a, a letter of intent out until I can get in there and meet the people. So that's what I'm seeing. Sunil, you, you see something similar? Uh, Pierre, hey, thanks everyone uh, for having me here today. And uh, yes, uh, really uh, wish you all a very good afternoon. Look, I mean, truth be told, the uh, M&A industry is uh, mired in a you know, miasma of uncertainty. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot going on, you know, on, uh, Right now, you know, but I can tell you that, you know, what from uh, from mine and my team's uh, experience, what we're seeing is, uh, yes, I mean, you know, there is uh, there's a little bit of panic. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, people are looking private equity prof, uh, groups as well as family offices. And also uh, we're seeing a lot of activity from independent sponsors. Yeah, especially private equity. I think they're, they're starting to see that, hey, you know, um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, deals that are done in a weaker economy, they usually outperform deals done in a stronger economy, right? So I think we're seeing definitely, um, you know, a lot of activity there, uh, you know, from an interest in business models that have weathered the storm and are doing well and are resilient. And also we're seeing that, hey, it's not, it's not just a, uh, predatory behavior that we're seeing out there, you know, uh, you know, with private equity vulturing around, you know, uh, companies that are weakening. 
I think they're also seeing that, look, I mean, if there are clear synergies, they're willing to look at it and do a fair deal, you know? So, I mean, look, I, I, you know, there, there's a saying that, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I really like, and, uh, you know, I love meditation. I mean, I meditate all the time. So I think, you know, it comes from a higher place, you know, there's, you know, compassion has no limits, right? So, and kindness, you know, uh, has, uh, you know, no enemies, right? So, <laughs> so I think, I think we're seeing that in the marketplace, we're talking to investors day in, day out. And, uh, and it's overall, I would say it's positive. Some sectors have been uh, have taken uh, you know uh, a beating and uh, and are certainly uh, you know uh, going through challenging times. But then you know there's obviously uh, this is not a new normal you know uh, in any way. So uh, with right. that said, you know I'll I'll leave it to Andy. Yeah, and no. So so you kind of led us to our you know the second question. Uh, so if there's this pressure out there to you know save their own companies and maybe a little bit of uh, predatory uh, buying out there. Do you think that the multiples are starting to be affected or, you know, like I was talking earlier, maybe the survivors would even get a higher multiple and I'll go to Sunil first. Hey, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. So uh, Andy, I mean, look, uh, we, we, we are uh, my team and I are working mostly on healthcare opportunities and uh, also, and also tech, opportunities so we're not really seeing a huge impact on multiples right now uh we we but we are talking to uh you know day in day out as i said with investors and they are starting to do some corrections they have to do corrections because hey these businesses you know some of these businesses have been affected you know but there is that um you know there is that uh uh you know new sort of uh you know uh uh term that I sent over to you guys, which is called EBITDAC, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and the coronavirus effect. So, you know, uh, uh, and I think investors are looking at that carefully as well. Pre-COVID, you know, COVID and post-COVID type of scenarios. Yeah, Yeah, I would add to that that um, what I'm hearing and seeing is that uh, there's maybe a half a turn to a turn down of multiples. So you're talking about instead of a instead of a six, it might be a five or a five and a half. Um, but more importantly than the turn of the multiples, so that would be on companies, companies that are holding up better because of COVID are are uh, you know firm, more firm on the multiples and those that have a little headwinds or maybe a turn down. But the other thing that I'm seeing that's even more important and from talking to people is the the debt to equity is going up. That is the equity in the deals is like 50% equity and 50% debt. Whereas prior to this, you were at 30 to 40% equity and 60 to 70% debt. So the sponsors are having to come in to the deals with more cash and more conversely, there's more earnouts in the deal structure. So if you were humming along fine in 2019 and you were cooking through February of this year, and then you kind of got to the edge of the cliff and you sort of pulled back, and now you know your numbers for March, April, May are lousy, and you're you know you you have good visibility coming up in the third and fourth quarter, 
I think that what we're going to see is that private equity groups are going to reduce the cash to close. So let's say a, you know, a typical transaction, you might have 80 or 85% cash to close with some seller financing or a small earnout. You might see 60, 65% cash at closing and a bigger earnout. You know, earnouts going from 15% of the total to maybe 30%. And the sellers are having to take some responsibility in the valuation. Hey, if you're confident that your business is going to come back and you're confident that this was just a little COVID hiccup that you could put in parentheses, that's great, but you're going to have to prove it to me. So we're talking maybe a one-year type of an earnout, not a long-term deal, but get back to where you were last year and you'll get your money. But if you don't get back to where you were last year, the price is coming down. And, and I think we're going to see more of that uh, as we go forward, at least through the rest of this year. It's really interesting, Peter. And, and kind of while we're on deal structure and you're, you're talking about cash and earnout stuff, I've also heard that the lending environment has changed on these larger M&A transactions and that lenders are hesitant um, to get these deals done. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing on the lending front. Right, I'll jump in and then Sunil, you know, you can, you can jump in. Um, so senior debt levels are coming down from what used to be three times EBITDA on senior debt and four times total debt. So for example, if you were doing a deal at, at seven times EBITDA, you would have three times senior debt, one time maybe MES, and then three times cash to put your structure together. Now you're looking at two and a half to three times, two and a half times senior debt, three and a half times total debt. So that's why the cash has come up to 50% because you can't get 70% financing. There's not enough turns of EBITDA in, in senior and MES financing to get you to where you need to be. So, um, you know, that's, I mean, a, a seller wouldn't necessarily be involved in that discussion with the lender, right? That's the, that's the sponsor talking, talking to the lender. But it's good to understand what the private equity groups are going through on their side, so they under, so you understand what they're looking for from you. The other thing I, that I've seen uh, in talking to MES lenders is the interest rates are going up. You know, when the market was hot, when it was a when it was a seller's market, you were looking at like ten percent current with maybe a two percent pick or payment in kind. Now you're looking at 12 and two. So interest rates are up a couple percent. Also, uh, MES lenders are taking warrants. Whereas last couple of years, we could always, you could always beat the MES lenders down and have them pass on taking the warrants. Now they're looking for warrants, which adds maybe another 5% to the yield. So it's definitely not a seller's market when it comes to funding. Sunil, so, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, all I would add is I think Peter's done a great job in, uh, you know, in, in describing that, you know, all I would add is, again, um, you know, it is uh, depend, it depends, you know, it depends on uh, the, uh, the, uh, the company, the industry, you know, it's, it depends. So, I mean, there are investors who are able to do deals, uh, you know, that are more highly leveraged if there is a you know if there are cash flows to support that so it uh, it it completely depends but overall yes i mean you know we are seeing that uh, 
the market for leveraged debt financing seems to be tight right now. So, well, you know, another interesting thing, Jess, is that um, the PPP loans created a huge amount of work for these lenders. Um, I'm t- I'm hearing people who have said that they've that they have. You know, they up their their staff, their SBA staff from 10 to 100 people or 150 people. So they're doing nothing but processing these PPP loans and it's completely taken them out of the game. I mean, they they're just too busy. Um, You know, I was talking to a uh, to a, a private equity group the other day and they said that they would normally put out a proposal to 10 lenders and they would get seven proposals, seven term sheets. Now they're getting three term sheets. Same deal. Good, you know, good cash flowing businesses, but the banks are telling them, look, we're just up to here with the PPP. And until we can get breathe, we're we're just not looking at deals. Forget about the multiples of that, you know, all that stuff. They're just busy. Now I think that's all collecting itself. And I think that over the next couple of months, that's going to normalize. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of calming down, right? And so, and Sunil, I'll go to Sunil talking about the buy side a little bit and some private equity. Uh, there was a ton of cash on the sidelines before this all happened. And, 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 and one of the questions was, you know, are some of the newer private equity groups in better shape because they were just funded and they have all this, you know, kind of dry powder uh, as opposed to the other private equity, as Peter described earlier, might be scrambling to make sure their newer, their older investments are are, are doing okay. So, what are you seeing yeah. as far as the buy side out there? As far as like who's 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 in good shape right now? So certainly the newer funds, you know, that got uh, raised just prior to COVID, you know, uh, you know, or just late last year or so, uh, last year, uh, you know, this uh, these funds are, you know, still very active and they haven't been impacted much, you know. Uh, we continue to receive a, a lot of, um, you know, uh, requests uh, to, you know, work with them on, uh, you know, sourcing proprietary deals. So they're very active. Uh, I would say this, though, there, you know, that, uh, you know, we are also seeing that some of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the older vintages out there, you know, the older funds out there, they're, they're, they're continuing to uh, look at opportunities. They haven't stopped looking. I mean, maybe they have slowed down in the volume of deals they do, but, uh, you know, look, I mean, all of that, uh, you know, some of that dry powder did get used up to shore up their portfolio companies and, and to, you know, stabilize operations and things like that. But, but overall, I think you know we're we're still very uh, you know uh, we're seeing a lot of activity and uh, and it's good out there. They're in the business to do deals, right? That's what yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do have infrastructure. You know, they've got a lot of analysts and associates that whose job it is is to source deals. So those guys are still on the phones, talking and calling and speaking to people like like me and Sunil and our teams. But it, when it comes to pulling the trigger, I think that's where we're seeing a little bit of a hesitation. You know, they're not getting on airplanes and flying down to meet people. That's a problem. Their lenders are telling them to hold off for a couple months. That's a problem. But they're still sourcing and talking, you know. Um, but as a seller, it's a good time because the, the time it takes to get engaged, to get packaged, 
put the marketing together and to get going, you wouldn't be going out to the market until, you know, the near the end of the summer. And at that point in time, we anticipate that the market's going to be much more robust. Yeah. And Peter, that actually, you keep leading us into our next questions, right? But um, that, that time, the timing you've talked about a lot. It, it seems like it's taking longer to get transactions done with the social distancing guidelines, with lenders being tied up with PPP. Let's talk a little bit about the change in timeline. And maybe if you could mention too, what isn't a normal timeline, right? So these sellers that are, are sitting on the sidelines, you already kind of mentioned, well, it takes some time to get to market and takes some time to package. So it wouldn't really behoove them to sit and wait. But let's talk about timelines previously and what you're seeing now. Right. Um, you know, so typically what we tell a client is from start to finish, it takes about a year to, to get a transaction done. Now, it's possible to get something done in eight or nine months. Uh, and sometimes things are going to take longer depending on uh, the complexity of the transaction. So um, I don't know yet whether that broad timeline is going to change dramatically. But what I'm seeing internally in the transactions that I'm involved with right now, uh, quality of earnings, which are the audits that the private equity firms conduct in order to prove out the numbers, um, those are taking longer because the everyone's working from home. The, all the accountants are working from home. The, the, the firms that do this like to come in and kick the tires, look at the business, and all of that stuff's been put on hold. So a lot of the QABs that I have going on have been delayed now for a month, six weeks. I'm hoping that as we, as you know, we just opened up, you know, like here in our market in, in Fort Lauderdale, it's only been a week since we've been, you know, quote unquote, back to work. Uh, and other parts of the country are still locked down. And for example, a lot, there's a lot of firms in New York City that are in lockdown mode. So the people aren't traveling up there. So I think that until we get into a more normalized travel situation um, and more people get back to work as opposed to working from home, I think that's going to have an impact. I'm seeing that right now. I don't know if the nine to 12 month total time frame is going to change much. Sunil, what do you think? Yeah, no, so I, I, I think, um, you know, uh, there, there is a challenge there with travel and, uh, you know, being not being able to, you know, also do on-site diligence, et cetera, et cetera. So there are issues there. So certainly, yes, we're going to see, you know, timelines, you know, getting pushed out. So, uh, but, uh, you know, overall, I think it's a good time to, you know, uh, to, for companies to, um, you know, engage and, you know, uh, and have, uh, you know, winning M&A strategy. I think uh, a lot of companies are are looking at, uh, you know, deals right now and uh, maybe it will get stretched out a little, but uh, hey, you know, uh, this is, uh, you know, there, there's opportunity here uh, right now. So we should, we should be open to that. And, and so the two of you are actively involved in deals and so Sunil, you just closed a, a, a nice deal, uh, you know, across board, you know, is uh, the, the buyer. Uh, you could, why don't you talk a little bit about the deal? <laughs> I, I won't say yeah, Sure, sure, with pleasure, with pleasure. So yeah, so this was a landmark deal in, uh, in agribusiness and I would say, you know, in forestry more so. So, you know, it is, uh, it's a, you know, it's uh, the world's largest uh, 
you know, Christmas tree farm based out of, uh, you know, the Northwest in Oregon. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we had to think out of the box here, you know, because uh, you wanted a buyer who truly understood the asset and appreciation for the asset. So we found an international buyer for this asset, you know, but who has significant, uh, you know, uh, forestry assets in, in the United States. And, uh, you know, and uh, yes, I mean, you know, we, uh, we completed uh, diligence uh, around January and then COVID happened and, and uh, the buyer wanted to go back and revisit the business plans and see, uh, you know, w- w- what impact, if any, COVID would have. But luckily, you know, f- uh, uh, for us, our, our, our client is very close to their customers. Uh, they were able to get some commitments, you know, uh, for the year ahead of time. So it's very important, uh, I think, for businesses to stay close to their customers, you know, and, and, uh, and, and also work with them, you know. So look, we are in this together, right? So really, so I mean, uh, that's exactly what our client did. They, they showed, uh, a, you know, deep engagement with their customers, gave the comfort to the buyer and the, and the buyer, you know, we didn't have much of a reduction in the deal. I mean, it was uh, right. less than 1% of the total deal value as a result of uh, COVID. But I mean, that, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that, you know, this is the case in every uh, industry and sector, but, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I think one can, uh, one can certainly, uh, you know, benefit from, you know, advising their clients uh, to uh, be more proactive and be aggressive about, uh, you know, keeping in touch with their customers. Yeah. And just to follow up with that, Peter, you know, so we got that deal done, that deal got done. Uh, It was, you know, very tough. Uh, We had to convince the buyer through COVID and, you know, we had the right buyer. And so Peter, uh, you've had a couple deals. And um, so you don't specifically, you know, run in the medical world, which, you know, seems to be even busier these days. Some of the stuff we've had is in construction and you've seen people say, okay, let's take a pause here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, some businesses that are service oriented uh, have are, have done very well in uh, you know during the last three months. Uh, that would be considered construction, but construction related, like pool service, electrical, plumbing, uh, businesses like that, HVAC, um, which are still in demand and necessary businesses. Um, bricks and mortar is tough because there's a there's a, a big headwind in real estate now. We're not sure what's gonna happen with rents, with office space, with, you know, a, there's a lot of bankruptcies in retail. You don't know what's happening with shopping centers. So I think that businesses that are heavily construction related by project, not recurring revenue, but project related, are going to probably have to prove themselves more to a buyer than service-related businesses that have recurring income. Definitely. That's really interesting. And actually just answered one of our Q&As. Um, so just a reminder to everybody that's on the call, if you do have questions for Peter or Sunil, you can drop them in the chat or the Q&A. Um, we'll kind of tie them in as we go along, or we'll do a Q&A section at the end. Um, but two of the top experts in mergers and acquisitions on the podcast right now. So I wouldn't miss the opportunity to ask your question. Um, so Neil, I'm going to toss the next one to you, but 
We talked a little bit about deal dynamics. What are you seeing on the buy side? Are there any trends that buyers should be aware of of what they could negotiate in terms of dynamics or structures and deals? Anything from like purchase agreements, tax considerations, anything trending? Yeah, so, you know, tax considerations, you're seeing that, uh, you know, as a result of this CARES Act, now you're able to, you know, uh, look at uh, carrying forward net operating losses for the past five years, which uh, didn't exist before. So, I mean, that's a big, uh, you know, big, huge consideration. So that's one thing that, you know, buyers are going to be looking at, you know, uh, as, as um, you know, as, as, a, as an important consideration. And then, you know, you also have, uh, you know, I think buyers are getting more uh, uh, aggressive in terms of, um, you know, I think looking at also how they uh, view, um, you know, earnouts, right? So, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think we're seeing that in, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, you know, I mean, um, uh, as I said earlier, you need to have uh, some sensitivity analysis that, uh, that one needs to do and conduct, you know, to look at what was, what is COVID versus, uh, you know, post and pre COVID and, uh, you know, look at a blended sort of, uh, you know, scenario there. Um, you know, I think we're going to see, uh, some, uh, you know, interesting and exotic structures also come out of this, you know, with, uh, with, uh, caps, you know, and uh, uh, with collars, you know, uh, with uh, types of uh, deal structures where you have, you know, a, uh, a, a floor and, uh, and a cap, you know, and, and uh, depending upon, you know, you are hitting certain milestones, you know, you are able to, um, you know, realize the uh, upside over a period of time. So, I mean, earnouts are also going to get uh, possibly uh, get extended uh, from, you know, your typical six to 12 to now 24 uh, month uh, duration. So, and also I think, you know, one of the things buyers also looking at is, you know, the other major considerations like workforce disruption, right? So that's an important consideration. You know, there are workers who are affected at these businesses as a result of COVID um, and they need to see, you know, what is the long-term impact of this, you know? So are we able to find, you know, replacements or, you know, is it gonna become a, a, a real issue? And then, you know, there'll be some uh, goodwill and uh, intangible impairments as well. So I think those things are all important considerations. Peter, do you have anything Peter, to add to that? Uh, no, I, I would just say in general, though, that, um, you know, I mean, you know, technically there's things like there's PPP loans out there, which are, you know, there's a lot of diligence that has to be done because you have forbearance on, um loans, you have uh, rent abatements, you've got PPP loans that aren't necessarily on the books uh, that don't have collateral. So there's a lot of diligence that has to be done to make sure that uh, the, the companies that you're buying, um, you know, are clean, are clear. And as a business owner, you need to make sure that you're doing the things necessary to make sure that the PPP loans are going to get forgiven and become granted as opposed to paid back because uh, we're seeing that right now in transactions we're in the middle of. Um, if you know some people borrowed a million dollars, are they going to have to pay that back or not? And it becomes a liability to the buyer. So you know, there's a lot of a lot of new twists and turns that that have come into play because of this. Um, so let me ask but, a question, uh, a, a great general question: uh, Who wins? Who who wins? The buyers or the sellers? Who's going to win? I'll go to Peter first. 
Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I like to think in terms of what we do that everybody can win, right? I mean, it's it not litigation. It's okay. No, but I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, first I would say that good businesses will sell. So if you have a good business, if you have a business that's, that's thriving, that's prospering, you know, I'm in the middle of a transaction now with an online business that sells of nutraceuticals and vitamins. I mean, their sales are up 50% a month over the last three months. I mean, they, they want to not sell the business, right? Um, they want to get out of the deal if they can. Um, so good businesses will sell and, you know, good businesses will be winners. Uh, obviously, if you're under any distress, then, you know, multiples are going to be a little lower. And so buyers will win. But if the mal if your if your earnings are actually lower, did the buyer really win? I mean, you know, um, if it's time to sell, and you're in a, a time of your life where you are ready to retire, or you have health issues or other issues, uh, you don't have kids in the business, and it's time to go. Then what you really need to do is just, you know, do the best job you can. Obviously, get the best advisors that you can to help you do it. Uh, get the most, get in front of the most potential buyers and create as much competition as possible to, um, which will create a higher price. Be flexible and understand that you might have to take a little less cash and, and maybe have a piece of an earnout in your transaction. But even if multiples are lower, remember historically, they're higher than they've ever been in the past 20 years or more. So multiples now might be where they were in 2018 or, you know, in 2019, which was already very high. So the heady days are gone, but the multiples are still high relative to, you know, historical numbers. Right. Um, I would make sure you're managing your business properly. You're managing your PPP loans. You know, if you, if you laid off a bunch of people, think about who you need to bring back. You know, this is a good time to sort of, get lean and get profitable and get rid of initiatives that weren't working. Maybe relook at your marketing, maybe get rid of all that stuff that wasn't really paying off and see if you can come back just like the big public companies do. You know, the big public companies after the great recession in 08 and nine, all those people were laid off. They cut back on marketing. They cut back on office. They cut back on all these expenses. Revenue came back and the profit margins were massive. I mean, you never saw bigger profits than you saw, right. you know, 10, 11, 12. And it was because they took advantage of leaning, the leaning process. I would do that and uh, position yourself for greater profits going forward. Okay. So Peter kind of hit on the, on the uh, sell side there a little bit more. So Sunil, how are the buyers winning in this game? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it it's, uh, it's, it's simple, you know, they, they need to, they need to, uh, you know, look at, you know, what are winning m &A strategies, right? There's a strong correlation between, uh, we looked at data from 2000 to 2019 between capital markets and m &A activity, you know, the, they're very strongly correlated, 80%. So, I mean, you know, data is, uh, is, is, uh, is key to, uh, you know, developing your, uh, you know, strategy. So I think, uh, 
you know, de-risking, you know, de-risking your M&A strategy is important. You know, you don't necessarily have to do acquisitions. You can do strategic alliances. You can do joint ventures. Hey, you can also, you know, you shouldn't take your value creation uh, for granted. You know, I think uh, it's important that, uh, you know, you, you look at, you know, what, what can be done, you know, um, right now in terms of uh, fine tuning and tweaking your existing businesses. So, you know, they're actually uh, staying solid and strong, but I would say, you know, prepare, don't panic and be bold. You know, these three things are very important. It's mindset has a lot to do with, you know, deal making and also getting good deals done. So I think these three things, you know, with that, you know, I love mantras and this would be my mantra, you know, prepare, don't panic and be bold. I like that. I like that. I might steal that to Neil. So hey, anytime. <laughs> you guys are my whole team too. Well, at this point, uh, we'll wrap up with a general question at the at top of the hour, but we do have a bunch of Q&A going on. We've got almost um, 200 participants on the call. So a, a bunch of Q&A. We probably won't get to them all, but I'm going to throw some out there um, and maybe we'll just alternate um, unless you guys want to jump in. So, Sunil, I'll, I'll throw um, the first one to you, and then Andy will throw the next one to Peter. So the first question comes from Adrian, and he's wondering, metrics and factors. What metrics and factors are lenders looking at in the current market to be willing to lend to buyers on the deals? And we, we touched on this a little bit, but what would be a couple key factors they're looking at in this COVID world? So uh, first is, buy, you know, lenders are looking at the uh, underlying asset. You know, what's the buyer purchasing? Is that uh, industry badly impacted? I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's that's one one of the, uh, you know, things that buy, uh, a lender will look at. Next, the lender is going to look at, you know, is this buyer, um, does this buyer have, you know, relevant experience, you know, and uh, and also credentials uh, to to buy this asset, right? Uh, for example, in healthcare, if it's uh, you know with high reimbursement risks and there's a, a lot of uh, you know uh, regulatory you know headwinds, you know, so you know you you, you know the lenders obviously want to make sure that you know that that uh, the buyer is able to you know. Uh, keep the business sustainable. And then, you know, they're also going to look at uh, solvency and going concern risks, right? That's uh, that's an important uh, risk. Uh, I would say that, you know, uh, it's lenders are, you know, I mean, there's a, there is, there is a tightening as we discussed earlier, you know, but I mean, the lenders are also, uh, also going to look closely like Peter talked about PPP, you know, the worker adjustment and retraining uh, notification, the WARN Act. You know, that's something that, you know, lenders are also going to look at closely, you know, and, and I think buyers should familiarize themselves with all these uh, issues, you know, before they uh, decide to, you know, put in a, 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 an LOI or even go to contract. Right. So I would say, you know, these are some key considerations. And, yeah, and, and, I, should and be you fed right into the next question, which I think is a great question. And Danielle, you could help us with the questions as well. Um, you know, so... Uh, somebody asked, and you mentioned it, I think, earlier, Peter, about earnouts. Uh, and what are the general structures of earnouts? Are they based on gross sales, on earnings, on gross profit? Percentage, you know, what percentage of the deal have you seen? Yeah, you talked right. about that they might go up. Right. So um, I did touch on that briefly. Um, what we're going to see is earnouts being a bigger piece of the total consideration now than they were 
you know, before, you know, earlier this year or last year. Um, usually an earnout is goes into place to bridge the gap between the seller's expectation of value and the buyer's perception of value. So if the buyer is looking at a multiple of EBITDA and, you know, in a range, it's five or six times, and the seller's looking for, you know, seven times, and the buyers are willing to pay six times, and then that gives you one time turn of EBITDA in the middle. So if the EBITDA is $5 million, then you might have a $5 million earnout on what would be a $30 million or $35 million transaction. Or, you know, you can dice it up into any multiple. Um, typically, what I like to do is I like to use the easiest metric to measure with the fewest potential problems. That's usually gross profit. Um, buyers don't want to use revenue because then that incentivizes the seller to just go out and get unprofitable business with, with a very low gross profit margin. So they don't want the seller to just run out there and, and goose up the gross revenue in order to get the earnout. The buyers, uh, I don't advise my, my buyers to get caught in an EBITDA calculation because EBITDA is there are so many ways to get from here to to zero on EBITDA. And you, you know, there's fees that the, that the private equity could throw in, there's management fees, consulting, they could expense things and purchase things, they could hire people. It's way too complicated. Gross profit is really simple. You sell it, you subtract what it costs to produce it, and that's a number. And as long as you agree on the inputs that are going into cost of goods, which is usually just two or three, they might have labor in it, you might have materials in it, you know, a couple of things, uh, shipping costs sometimes go in it, and then you've got a number, and that's your number. And again, it's really the the what we're going to see now post COVID is there, the earnouts could be as high as thirty percent of deals. I mean, that's historically very very high. Typically, it's ten or fifteen percent, and that usually that ten or fifteen percent is the the delta between what the seller wants and what the buyer is willing to pay. Hey. You give me the earnings, I'll give you the extra money. So that's that's how I see it. So while you're talking about EBITDA, one of the questions is, is it standard and customary to add back owner's compensation for deals that are in the target zone for buyers like private equity firms? No. Um, I, I just throw, throw it out there because it's a quick answer. With an EBITDA calculation, it's not what you might call discretionary earnings or seller's discretionary earnings. Uh, when a professional buyer like private equity is looking at a transaction, they're not operators. They have to have an operator in there. And so they're going to pay that person, let's say, $150,000 plus health insurance and expenses. Let's call it $200,000. Then that $200,000 has to stay in. Now, if the seller is taking $500,000 of salary, and then you can adjust three hundred dollars back in. But you can't add it all back in the way that you would do it if it was seller's discretionary earnings. Great, quick answer. And we've got a number of questions in there about smaller transactions. And we do want to really focus this time on the M&A market. So Andy and I will answer those separately via email afterwards. Um, the next one I'm going to throw back to Sunil. It's about um, the buyer's market. So Sunil, are you seeing more strategic buyers in the market that are active or more financial like private equity buyers? Or is it about equal right now? Yeah, so we are seeing, uh, we're seeing actually... Uh, 
more uh, financial sponsors like family offices and private equity firms. Uh, we we think strategic buyers, you know, the first and foremost responsibility for a CEO is uh, to make sure their employees are safe and their businesses are safe. You know, then they look at, you know, uh, M&A. Uh, so we're slowly starting to see that, you know, these, uh, these strategics are, you know, uh, coming back, but it's not, uh, it's not, uh, they're not as active as, uh, as uh, private equity. I mean, I, there are some classic examples here, you know, Xerox was, uh, a, you know, looking at an acquisition there of HP and, uh, or, uh, you know, and that, that was a $34 billion uh, dollar deal. And uh, I think it was dropped. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's the other way around, but but then, you know, and then, you know, SoftBank pulled out a WeWork, you know, that was a $3 billion deal, right? So you can see that, you know, strategics are, you know, more cautious in their approach. So right now, so their first and foremost concern is making sure that their businesses are stable and, uh, and then, you know, they will, you know, prioritize, uh, reprioritize and then look at them. So I hope that answers. Peter, do you have something? Yeah, I, I agree. Private equity, you know, it's it's ten people in an office in New York. They're not worried about integrating a thousand employees back in. Now, their their portfolio companies are, but um, strategics, you know, really they have a lot of problems. How do you open up? What do you do to keep your people safe? What are the what happens if somebody gets sick? What are your liabilities? You know, Congress is talking about possibly you know, shielding employers who follow certain guidelines from, from legal liabilities. I mean, there's a lot of questions out there that need to be answered. And that's a big, huge distraction from, uh, from strategics right now. So one of the questions from Todd is, well, what kinds of businesses then are being looked out for outright purchases? So, uh, you want to take that Peter, or would you like? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, look, I think we're both going to say the same thing. Yeah. Any good business is going to sell. Um, you know, people are not looking at restaurants, food service, produce. You know, anybody that sells into leisure, to travel, to food, hotels. You know, all the things that you know have been decimated, uh, where there's blood in the water. People just need to see who the survivors are and you know, who the who the casualties are. Um, the businesses that are doing well um, are the companies that people are looking at. Um, so, you know, think of all the products and things that you're buying on Amazon or the things that you're buying at, at Walmart. Um, think of the services that you're consuming in your home, having people come into your home and provide services. Um, Look at what you're buying online. You know, these are the types of businesses that thrived and are going to continue to thrive. And that's what, uh, you know, so as a blanket, I would say, if you're, if a business survived and thrived during the last three months, people are going to be looking for it. And if a yeah. business died the last three months, people are going to be stepping aside and saying, look, let's see who the survivors are. We'll circle back around next year. And go ahead, Sunil. Yeah, just, uh, you know, that's great, Peter. And that's absolutely right. And uh, to put some data around it, since I love data, right? So <laughs> there was a recent study uh, that was done by IBB and MA Source in uh, coordination with, uh, in collaboration with Pepperdine and the university. And, um, you know, according to that, you know, uh, 
survey that was done, you know, what what are they seeing, you know, in terms of what people are buying, you know, in the five five to fifty million dollar range, it's twenty seven percent healthcare, twenty percent wholesale and distribution, and twenty percent business services. So to Peter's point, I mean, anything that's essential, you know, that you're using and that's available and accessible, you know, look at, you know, that's uh, that's uh, that's a great it's a great time to buy by. Yeah, and by the way, I think there's a danger in that sometimes uh, that you might overpay for someone who's doing really well right now, like mm-hmm. in the distribution grocery business. <laughs> and then all of a sudden everybody goes up back out to eat and that might not yeah. be the case anymore. And so there was what, a couple of questions scattered around here uh, when Sunil mentioned EBITDA AC, uh, which I joke in my house means earnings before interest taxes, daughters, and Allison Cagnetta. But- um, you know, but it, it it actually stands for after COVID, right? Or, you know, so, so Sunil, like how much, it, it, I think it's going to be interesting, right? Going forward, like whether or not we're going to really adjust that up or down. Like I just mentioned there, a, a way that we might adjust someone's earnings down because they did so well. Yeah. 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 So I think uh, it depends. I mean, you know, uh, what type of business you are, right? So, and and uh, you know you have to do sensitivity analysis. You have to do scenario-based analysis. You know it it can't be uh, you know just uh, uh, what's happening right now. You know it, it, like you said, if it's a business that's an essential service, and all of a sudden you're seeing some super normal you know growth during these times, you know that has to be normalized. You have to normalize for that. And uh, you know that's why I look at you know what happened pre-COVID, what's happened during COVID, and what is likely to happen. You know, after COVID, and then you know you assign some weights to that, and you do some you know uh, uh, you know risk uh, risk based uh, adjustments, and then you arrive at a, you know at a at a more sort of uh, reasonable you know fair uh, scenario that uh, you can then apply a multiple to you know or you know I I, I would say uh, during these times. You know, uh, also if if you are an operator that's going to buy a business, you know, I would say for your own comfort, also do a discounted cash flow analysis, which is what uh, you know is the income method. You know, just for your own sort of uh, you know comfort and uh, uh, and keeping you know some sort of uh, balance there in in assigning values. So that's my take on it, Peter. Would you like? To yeah, add? you know, we used to always joke here, and we're in South Florida. And um, you, we have hurricanes, and there was a period of time in the early 2000s where we had huge hurricanes every year that came in and decimated, um, you know, the area. And so companies that were doing things like hurricane shutters and tree services and you name it, anything that would need to be repaired, roofing companies, they were all killing it. And then between 2006. And and in the next 10, 12 years, we didn't have one hurricane. And everybody had bought those companies at huge multiples that, you know, thinking that they were going to kill it every year. And literally 10, 12 years went by. We didn't get, we didn't even get a strong breeze. So you're thinking of the same guy I'm thinking of when we bought the business. Huh? Yeah, I was thinking of the same scenario. So it was funny. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, a tree trimming company can make that's making a couple hundred thousand a year can make two million bucks in like three months, you know, 
And then they may never make another dime for 10 years, you know? So you definitely have to normalize that. You have to look at what happened before COVID, during and after, and you have to kind of normalize the cash flows up and down, right? If they took a, if a company took a big dip in March, April, May, and June, they shouldn't be penalized severely if they come back. Now, if you're in the middle of buying them, the only way to do that is with an earnout, right? Because you know, it's he said, she said, right? The seller's like, oh, we're going to be back to normal. Pay me. Right. And the buyer's like, well, if you are back to normal, I will pay you. And there's your earnout. Right. It's a perfect solution and why we normalize earnings too. We don't have hurricanes in Colorado, but we do have hailstorms and similar. So you see something like that in every market, right? I, so. I did. I sold a roofing business out there and the, the, the hailstorms were, you had like two or three years ago, there was a massive hailstorm. Yeah. 2017 and 18. Yes. Everyone in the state got new roofs last year. And I had a roofing company that I was in the midst of selling in Florida and they sent a crew out to Denver yeah. And they set up shop and they sold like a thousand roofs yeah. in three months. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted to get paid for it. You know, they wanted to get paid a multiple on it. Right. Right. Well, it's been a really great conversation. I know we still have a lot of questions remaining, um, but we want to respect everybody's time, especially our guests, Peter and Sunil. We thank you guys both so much for joining the podcast. You always bring a wealth of information. Um, we do have remaining questions. If you need to reach Andy, Sunil, Peter, or I, I think the best way to do it is to go to the dealboardpodcast.com. You can submit a question or a contact form there, and Danielle will make sure it gets to the appropriate person. Um, and if you're not following our podcast, make sure you catch up. We've got, we're approaching almost 100 episodes now on Spotify, iTunes. Um, you can listen to topics like this. You can listen to small business topics. And then our next live podcast is in two weeks on June 10th, when we're talking about selling during this environment, selling through a crisis. So again, thank you all. Andy, I don't know if you want to add anything to quick wrap up. No, I just want to thank Sunil and Peter. I mean, uh, two professional M&A uh, guys who've been here and they can really represent you well. Uh, you know, again, we're working both the sell side and the buy side. And if you're an intermediary out there, we are here to help you as well. So uh, we can help you with your big deals uh, to get them done. Because as you just heard, these M&A deals have a lot of moving parts. And these two guys have the requisite knowledge to get them done. So thank you both for being here and sharing Our your pleasure. Knowledge. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Hey, Andy, do you know what time it is? It's time for our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Hey, we're back and it is deal of the week. And we have a very special deal this week. We have Sunil Shinoy from Transworld Business Advisors, our M&A division, Transworld Mergers and Acquisitions Advisory. And uh, 
And we want to talk about a deal that we just did, and I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to let Sunil do it because it was an extra special deal. It took over a year, and that's typical of this size of a deal. So Sunil, welcome, and why don't you give us a little bit of background about the deal? Hey, thank you, Andy. Uh, you know, firstly, I think it's important to, uh, you know, for the, for the audience and uh, for the listeners to understand, you know, what our platform is all about. So, you know, it's, I think it's very important because it sets the right context, you know, and gives the right perspective. So we have 800 plus senior professionals on the ground across 220 offices, across 40 states in the U.S. and 16 countries outside of the U.S. We are the world's largest small business M&A firm. And, you know, we're quickly evolving into a leading low middle market M&A firm, leveraging off of our strength and credentials and, uh, the, uh, the brand that we have created in the small business M&A space. So, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm privileged and honored to be part of uh, Transworld M&A Advisors. It's a very differentiated M&A advisory uh, service compared to a lot of the other lower middle market M&A advisory uh, shops out there. Uh, we are certainly, you know, um, we have the ability to cast a much wider net. Uh, we provide senior partner attention on each and every deal. And, uh, you know, we also have the uh, ability to, um, you know, uh, find needles in haystacks like we did in, on this deal. So uh, with that said, you know, I'm going to uh, get right into, you know, uh, this opportunity. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. So look, I mean, uh, you know, I worked on many, many transactions uh, over my career, 20-year career uh, across the globe. Uh, in many different industries and sectors, and uh, you know, in agriculture, forestry, in, in metals, in uh, aviation, a lot of healthcare, uh, and I'll tell you, this one is really special. Uh, it was special because you know, when 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 we received uh, you know the inquiry from uh, one of our 800 you know senior professionals on the ground out there in Oregon sitting in Oregon and we are in Fort Lauderdale Fort Florida right uh, and that shows you the power of you know our network and and how we collaborate you know i immediately uh, you know uh, felt that you know we looked into it and when we learned that it is in fact the world's largest tree christmas tree farm um, and uh, this deal was uh, from the beginning very special we were honored to you know, be given the opportunity. So it was a request for proposal. It was a competitive process that the uh, seller you know uh, ran to uh, pick a M&A advisor. The main reason they did that was you know it's a very professionally managed uh, company, and uh, when they tried on their own prior to engaging us, you know they had run their process internally. Uh, they hit a wall. You know, they went to all the usual suspects in the, you know, the competitors, you know, some of these right. uh, uh, other buyers in, in uh, you know, in, in, in forestry, uh, in, you know, Timberland type, uh, you know, uh, asset uh, owners. And, uh, you know, they just weren't able to, you know, get the value that they were expecting. Sure. Uh, so, so, so they felt that hey, you know, it's best to appoint an external M&A advisor who has the depth, reach, and expertise to assist us with this. So that's how it all started and began. Right. Uh, yeah. So you know, after after we landed the engagement, you know, we have a very um, you know team approach here at M&A. 
we have a deal execution team, we have a business development team, you know, and we have, uh, you know, the, uh, the deal making, uh, you know, side of this, which is usually the, the, the managing directors or the partners who get involved in, in that uh, aspect of, uh, you know, the deal process. So, you know, we, 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 from the moment we were engaged, we, you know, put together a robust plan uh, that we were going to, you know, adhere to throughout this process, right? So from, um, you know, we have our analysts and associates who have worked with leading world-class investment banks who put together a, a really solid, you know, uh, high-impact uh, offering memorandum together for the opportunity. Um, and then we've also put together our minds, our, our resources, you know, being the world's largest small business m firm, we have uh, a rich proprietary, uh, you know, data, data, databases or data sources internally. So we right. utilize that. We also subscribe to, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in subscribing to external databases. So we utilize that and put a curated list of prospects, uh, you know, for our business development team to work on. So, and, you know, and, and that was phenomenal. You know, I, I think our teams did a, both the deal execution as well as the business development team did a great job, the business development team. You know, we were working the phones uh, and reaching out to every known, you know, uh, you know, buyer out there. And we hit, we also hit a wall. So we did this a couple of times, right? So in the US and we reached out to every private equity fund you can imagine who are relevant and every prospective strategic buyer. And it was challenging. You know, we didn't uh, get much success uh, the first couple of rounds. And then finally we said, hey, now we've got to go global with this. You know, we've, we've got to think a little bit outside the box and go global. And, uh, and we were very blessed and fortunate to, you know, uh, to knock at the door of a, uh, a, uh, a fund that is uh, part of a global investment banking and asset management firm that uh, owns forestry assets all over the world. So they were intrigued. Uh, they were very um, impressed. They, uh, you know, the moment they read the offering memorandum, they, they said, hey, uh, we want to go meet these guys. We want to meet your clients. They took a flight out to Oregon. You know, and and it wasn't just uh, one person. It was a uh, you know a lot of uh, guys in their uh, Timberland right. investment group, the leadership team. They took a flight out there. They visited the uh, you know the uh, Christmas tree farms. They met with management, and they were blown away. They said, "Wow, you know this is uh, really you know uh, a, a prized trophy asset, and we would love to you know have it." Uh, and they were very impressed also with management there. So, you know, their very uh, clients management is very professional. They are utilized, you know, best in class systems. They are pioneers in the Christmas tree farming business. They introduced the concept of right. helicopter harvesting, you know, uh, which has uh, been, you know, a path breaking innovation in that industry, um, you know, and uh, has, has made life uh, much easier for, uh, you know, harvesting Christmas trees. Now, you know, I, I also want to um, give you some perspective on how big this, uh, you know, uh, business is. A client owned, owned 4,000 acres of mm -hmm. Christmas tree farms. 
you know, and, you know, that's massive. So imagine doing a due diligence on that, right? So, you know, and you're, you're talking about, you know, at least, you know, being able to, even if you took a, 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 a random sample and tried to diligence it, it would take a long time. So we were fortunate that we found uh, some third-party experts who were able to, and our client was already prepared and geared, you know, up for uh, this process. So, sure. you know, we had experts, you know, that uh, the buyer, you know, uh, engaged and we got this done in, in uh, you know, uh, I would say within a month or two months at the most, you know, that was the, that was really fast uh, for right. given the, given the, um, you know, the, the size of this asset. So, so you ran into a little COVID crisis as well. Yes, and, we did. We did. And, we, and we indeed you were able did. to get over that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, we were we were all set. I mean, we had signed the offers. You know, there was contracting was already uh, done. You know, due diligence was completed, and then COVID happened, right? So, and this is a global you know asset management firm. So naturally, you know, they had all hands on deck call. You know, uh, right. with their global chief investment officer, and uh, and they were thinking about what what to do with the uh, you know the offers and uh, that they had out there. And uh, luckily for us, we were blessed. They didn't hit the pause button, but they wanted to revisit the business plan uh, because they wanted to see if there was any impact related to COVID. And what happened was they realized, you know, because this company has a f- over a 40-year operating history. So you can imagine, you know, it's been through a few cycles, right? So, right. and we were able to demonstrate that this business was quite resilient, believe it or not to, you know, downturns, although COVID is unique in uh, the sense that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a more, um, I would right. say, uh, you know, different characteristics than the financial crisis that happened. This was, you know, um, a uh, health crisis. So, you know, uh, so it luckily didn't impact the business and, uh, you know, there was a small And, and I would imagine, uh, you know, people are going to want Christmas trees this year. They're going to want to celebrate the holidays. So, so I think yeah. the future looks bright for this. So, so you got yes. the deal done. It was the biggest deal that we've ever done, which was great. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, congratulations. It sounds like a great deal for the buyer and the, 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 and the seller. Seller was very happy, correct? Yes. I mean, they were very happy. I mean, uh, you know, the single largest shareholder in this group is a lady. Her name is Joy. And, uh, you know, you could really feel uh, the smile on uh, Joy's face, <laughs> you know, once, uh, once we closed the deal. So she, it was, it was, it was a big milestone for her, uh, because, uh, you know, she's not in the best of health and, uh, she wanted to make sure that, you know, that this process and transaction is completed because of, uh, her health conditions. So, Excellent. uh, so yeah, so, you know, we, we, we got it done and good deals. Uh, yeah. Good deals for good people. Right. Absolutely. And so uh, soon this is, sorry, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. So, so if somebody wanted to contact the M&A division, how's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So the best way uh, to reach out to you, go to our website and uh, you know, all our senior professionals are there. All our managing directors are there. Everyone has great experience and uh, you know, uh, ping us, you know, our email IDs are there, you know, our LinkedIn profiles are there. You know, and there's also a form you can fill in online if you if right. you'd like to do that. 
So, you know, there, um, and I'm always approachable and reachable, you know, by phone or email. Um, and uh, I'm you're sure very giving that. that way that you're willing to talk to anybody. So, so if anybody has a large transaction, want to talk to Sunil or one of our teammates, give us a call and uh, we'd be happy to do it. Congratulations again, Sunil. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Andy. Thank you for uh, giving us a chance to, uh, you know, to work with uh, Transfer Mini and get this done. So it was true team effort. Thank you so much. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for Listing of the Week. Welcome back, everybody. And today for our Listing of the Week, we're talking about mergers and acquisition deals or larger deals that we have listed for sale. And joining me back on the show is my husband, Albert Fiakovich, to tell us a little bit about a listing he has for sale in Colorado. Al, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about this business you have for sale. It's a bit of a unique business. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very unique business. This is a niche manufacturing business located in Colorado. They are they do a product that's in the agricultural industry and very, very well-known business. And it's been in business for over 50 years, which I think is incredible. Yeah, I think less than 5% or something like that of companies actually make it even to like their 20-year anniversary, let alone 50. So I don't even know what the stats are on that. So I assume it's been in business for a while. They probably have a pretty good amount of sales. Yeah, it's been very steady, Eddie. Very, very consistent. It's a, a little over three million in sales, and the earnings are a little over a million. So, very high margin business. Great opportunity to expand in the market that they're in. And our asking price is five million dollars on this business. So it sounds like a great business. I know we can't talk too much about it, but um, because it's so niche that they don't have a lot of competitors, but margins are great. Um, agricultural business is still really strong, even through the COVID crisis. If someone wants to reach out and learn more about this business or sign a non-disclosure agreement to get the pitch deck, how can they reach you? Sure. The best way is to call me, 720-370-6699, or email me, albert, A-L-B-E-R-T, at tworld.com. And we'll drop that information to the show notes as well. Al, thank you so much for joining us back on the deal board. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions, would like to appear, or have suggestions for topics for the show, get in contact with us through our website, thedealboardpodcast.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.